Greetings, Embers. Welcome to Back to Ashes. My name is Phoenix. I'd like to thank the reformed members of the channel. Plus, Crispin, Tammy Slayton, CAG, Denise S., Through Scrutiny, Samantha Place, Stephanie McLaren, Corpse Lover, Normie DW, Christy Elias, Cindy Cleveland, and Patty's Niece. If you would like to learn how to become a member of Back to Ashes or would like to buy me a coffee as a special thank you, both of those links can be found down below. Also, if you are new here and enjoy what you are hearing or you've been here and haven't done so yet, please don't forget to subscribe, like, share, and comment. Not only does it help the channel, but it reminds you of every time I upload a video. With that being said, it is time to go back to ashes. For once we arise from the ashes, we are a bigger, brighter, stronger, and a happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in and get warm, and prepare for this dose of vocal melatonin entitled True Backwood Creepy Stories. Right after this intro and ad will play, I'll read the first story and ad will play, and after that there will be no more ads within this video. I was camping with my kids when I woke up to a sound of blood-curdling screaming. It was my own kids screaming. They were pointing at the tent door. The zipper was unzipping, and a tiny hand came in and was trying to pull my backpack out. I forgot there were raisins in it. Raccoons. My kids were terrified of raccoons before this happened, so their screaming was intense. They calmed down after a couple of minutes, and I expected to hear someone shout, Everything okay over there? Or for a park ranger to walk up, because there were lots of campers in the sites nearby, and my kids were screaming bloody murder. Like straight from a horror movie, screaming. But no one checked on us. I imagined maybe they were all laying there too scared to move in case they were the next ones to be murdered and that maybe they are still wondering about the screaming ghosts or unreported murder to this day. So, this story isn't all that scary once you find out what's going on in the end, but was very unsettling at the time. This story is true. Here we go. This happened last summer. My husband's best friend flew out from L.A. to visit us in rural Iowa. My husband grew up in L.A., but I was raised here, and this is where we decided to settle down. We wanted to give our friend the full rural small town experience. And one thing you don't realize when you're from the city is how completely pitch black it is out here, with no street lamps or city lights to illuminate the night. It's something my husband commented on when he first moved here. There is a dense forest that covers several square miles just outside of town. It's a protected wildlife reserve. There are a lot of legends about this forest being haunted because it was the site of a bloody battle between Native American tribes and also a burial ground. The creepy old stone tower and dilapidated amphitheater in the middle of the woods are said to be especially haunted. There is also a pond in the heart of the forest that the locals referred to as Dead Man's Lake because somebody drowned in it several years ago and the body was never recovered. I'm not sure if it was an accidental or if it was a suicide. I've heard many different renditions of that story. I don't believe in ghosts and I'm not afraid of the dark or the woods, but my husband's friend does. This park technically closes at 10 p.m., but we decided to risk it and took our friend into the forest at midnight, on a moonless night, that is. We visited the tower first. I'd never seen it at night, and the sight of its black silhouette against the starry night, surrounded by gnarled, dead trees, was an unsettling one that set the mood for the rest of the night. After a little convincing, we got our friend to follow us into the tower, up the old creaky spiral staircase. We spent some time surveying the surrounding scenery and enjoying our view of the clear night sky from the tower's rooftop lookout. The view was magnificent, and I thought it looked magical, but our friend just seemed to be getting more nervous by the second. 
We hiked back down the long dirt trail to the car, but kept hearing what sounded like footsteps coming from the trees on both sides and from behind us. Our friend was scared it could be something paranormal. I was worried about drug dealers or meth heads. Since there is a large population of sketchy people and frequent meth lab busts in this area. My husband and I had our 9mm pistols strapped to our belts, but we didn't want to have to use them. We picked up our pace back to the car and drove further into the forest to the place where the trail to the old amphitheater begins. Our friend was really on edge now, since the trees are much denser in this part of the forest and it is incredibly dark. We convinced him to follow us down the steep, rocky trail to the amphitheater. When we arrived, I noticed a tall structure standing in the center of the amphitheater that has never been there before, but it was too dark to tell what it was. I'd been using only the light on my smartwatch to guide my way, so as not to ruin the eerie illusion created by the inky darkness of the forest with a flashlight beam. At this point, even my husband was becoming uneasy and wanted to turn back. But I had to know what that mysterious object was, which had appeared in the last two days since my last hike to this part of the forest. I carefully made my way down into the center of the arena and drew closer to the structure, my husband and our friend following closely behind. When I was a couple feet away from the object, I lifted my wrist to illuminate it with the light from my watch, and I felt a sense of dread and fear instantly wash over me. Standing before me was a ten-foot-tall wooden arch wrapped in red silk and adorned with animal bones and red roses. The skull of a deer with massive antlers was mounted at its peak, the similar object that sat lowered to the ground that I hadn't seen before looked to be some kind of stone altar. Suddenly, the rustling noises coming from the forest on all sides that I had previously chalked up to be animals or the wind seemed much more threatening. My first thought was that a malicious cult or band of Satanists were lying in wait to sacrifice us to a demon, as ridiculous as that sounds. But in that moment, it seemed possible and likely all three of us jumped and turned toward the direction of our car when we heard a car door close and saw the faint glow of headlights peeking through the trees. We rushed back up the trail expecting to find some crackheads attempting to break into our car. We didn't know whether to be relieved or apprehensive when we saw a DNR truck parked next to our car and the officer scanning the trees with his flashlight. He greeted us and asked what we were up to. We told him that we were showing our friend around, and he informed us that the park was closed. He noticed our firearms and asked for our permits and IDs, which we gave him. He went back to his truck to run our info and returned minutes later with an $80 ticket for being in the park past closing. After that, we spent about 15 minutes having a friendly chat with the officer when he asked, So, what's the amphitheater like at night? I told him it was really creepy and proceeded to describe what we had witnessed. The officer chuckled at the terrified looks on our faces and told us that a Wiccan couple had rented out the amphitheater for their wedding tomorrow and had been by today to decorate. So, a bit of a disappointing ending. I was relieved at first, but also disappointed. I planned to return to the forest on another dark night, but this time... I'll go alone, and I'll go in on foot so the DNR can find me. So, I've been sitting on this experience for a while. I guess just not wanting to make a big deal out of nothing. But after reading some of the stories here and on other related websites... I would really like an answer to what I'm experiencing. Back in about March of this year, I went camping with a friend, my boyfriend, and three dogs. My friend slept in his tent with his dog, and I slept in my tent with my two dogs and my boyfriend. 
My friend's tent was about 30 feet away from ours, and we were camping in the North Georgia mountains off of an old forest service road. We were right next to a creek. For context, I'm an experienced backpacker and am familiar with the usual nighttime sounds like rustling in the leaves, sticks breaking, cicadas, etc. I have a lot of experience camping by myself, so it's rare that I get spooked out by anything other than another human nearby, as I'm aware of the dangers of traveling solo as a woman. However, this particular night, I wake up in the middle of the night with a sense of absolute dread I've never felt before. I check my phone, and it's about 3.30, maybe 4 a.m. I really had to use the bathroom and was debating on whether I wanted to try to put my hiking boots on and venture outside to go or just try and hold it until daylight. I didn't want to wake up the dogs. Maybe if they heard me putting on my boots, they'll likely want to go outside to go to the bathroom as well. I'm still in the tent. That's when I noticed it. It's almost like a hum, but not in the pleasant way where it's a tune or anything like that. It's a low-pitched hum that was reverberating throughout the campsite and forest and through my body. It had two tones. It started with a relatively higher pitch and would switch to the relatively lower pitch after a period of time. Then it would start over without a break in the sound at all. It wasn't soft either. I felt like it was covering the entire wooded area we were in. It didn't sound like an animal, a person, a machine, or anything that I've ever heard of. At this point, I absolutely cannot hold off on a bathroom trip any longer. I quickly put on my hiking boots and quietly tell the dogs to stay put. My boyfriend is still sleeping. I unzip the tent and go outside and the entire campsite was covered in this spooky-ass fog. But it felt like it was my vision that was foggy, not the actual air. I couldn't see a damn thing. The two-tone humming then got louder. I do my business about five feet away from my tent. Sorry, but there's no way I was venturing any further than that. And quickly note the hell back into my tent and buried myself into my sleeping bag with a sweatshirt over my head to try and drown out and ignore the humming. The dogs raise their heads and growl a few times throughout this experience, but that isn't unusual for them when camping. I never saw any figures or lights in the woods, but I also was not looking for them and was trying to ignore the entire experience. Does anyone know what this humming could have been? Alright, brief background. I want to begin by clarifying that the majority of this post is a prelude to my actual upcoming amateur investigation. What I'll be documenting in this story is essentially a compilation of stories I've been told, some retelling of others, and also what little I've already checked out myself. I will not claim validity to any of the accounts I'm about to give you. All I can be certain of is that I trust dearly the person from which I continue to get a lot of these stories, as they are the mother of a close friend I've known for over 10 years. Honestly, some of this stuff gets a little weird for belief, but I intend to put it to the test however I can soon. The place I call my hometown and current town is a Kentucky county comprised of old coal mining towns that, at one point, had a bustling economy. Let's call it Arling. Unfortunately, coal mining died a slow and painful death, and so is my home. This saddens me greatly. Arling is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen, nested into the heart of one of the oldest mountain ranges on Earth. The Appalachian Mountains have a tangible natural spirit to them. 
I also believe they are host to variety of things we do not understand. I, along with my girlfriend and roommate, often hike old trails around the country in hopes of finding interesting sights to see. We are always looking for somewhere neat to hike far out into the sticks. I had a friend of mine ask some of his work buddies if they knew of any rural pathways to test out. One of them mentioned that his father had hiked a path ascending a mountain beside what we call the old lake and that the place scared him to death. The old lake is a part of a forsaken WMA, Wildlife Management Area, about 10 miles outside of town toward the state lines at the base of Mount Mason. The government property lines only go so far. Beyond that, it's private property owned by a local wealthy family, presumably abandoned as well. The man's father told of how he had once hiked along the ascending trail that follows the creek from the lake and up into the mountains past the WMA boundaries. I would refer to this trail as Lonesome Creek. The man crested a hill and prepared to briefly rest upon a flat spot. He quickly took notice of a shady campsite that had evidently been set up on the flat for some time. The site was unremarkable at first glance. Nothing there but a fire pit surrounded by wooden chairs, but he could just barely see something else beyond the tree line. It looked as though someone haphazardly poked big sticks into the surrounding forest. A closer look revealed that what it was looking at were pikes staked into the dirt and adorned with severed cat heads. The man's hair raised up as he felt something out there put his eyes on him. He quickly put distance between himself and Lonesome Creek and never again so much as visited the old lake. After hearing this story, it dawned on me that I had been told something similar years ago. This story, too, implied possible ritualistic activity on Mount Mason. As it goes, a mutual friend and his cousin had taken their ATVs on Lonesome Creek at night. Sometime into their ride, the pair spotted a makeshift sitting area right in the middle of the trail. It was shabbily constructed with a few chairs as well as something like a preacher holds his Bible on. A pulpit, I'm assuming. Even more frightening was a recently doused fire in front of this pulpit. Someone had been there just before they arrived. The two riders killed their engines and unseated themselves, looking around the ridge with their flashlights. Needless to say, they didn't bother shining their lights and left in a hurry. They probed no further. Remembering this incident was enough to have me look deeper into this harrowing mystery. The occult aspect of Appalachia has always intrigued me. Everything from folk magic to the blackest of practices pervades the history of the hill folk and their predominantly Scottish-Irish ancestors who immigrated long ago. In the spirit of curiosity, my girlfriend and I took a midday ride up to the backside of the old lake, opposite from the frequented dockside where and families boat and fish. The road was in rough shape, and upon arrival, it was obvious from the massive amount of trash that the Department of Fish and Wildlife had long abandoned this WMA. We walked up to the seemingly well-traveled path against the downward stream of the titular creek. After reaching the marked end of the WMA, approximately 0.5 miles in, we decided it was wise to go no further. The sheer seclusion of the place pulled me in, but I needed to take time to plan carefully and gather up a few willing folks to walk along the old Lonesome Creek Trail. A quick check of Google Maps confirmed the garbage-ridden lakeside to indeed to be the bottom of the trail. The path appeared to follow the creek up to a massive rocky ridge that wraps around the side of Mount Mason, leading to an overview of the newer larger lake a few miles over. Finding out where to go was simple enough. I suspected that getting there would not 
be as such. Exploration The following Saturday, I managed to gather and prepare four of my friends with which to set out to the old lake. Two of us came with firearms. The other two brought knives and mace. Confident yet anxious, we left the dirty lakeside and headed up parallel to the creek. The lower part of the trail was lined with large jutting rocks that formed caves below and continued up the mountainside. These enormous jagged pieces seemed to have fallen long ago from the massive ridge above, which topped Mount Mason like a crown. Past the caves and closer to the lowest part of the ridge, the trail aligned to a rocky old creek bed, now diverted and empty. We stopped to rest at the bathroom of a switchback, now at a high enough elevation to be cradled by a lower portion of the ridge overhanging the trail's connecting elbow. After some respite under the stone's shade, we began our ascent to the top. The path soon wound away from the creek and continued to repeatedly switch back and forth up the side of a steep, stunningly green hill. Studded into the landscape were small scattered stones lain upon by long fallen trees, all covered in moss of a believably ancient color. From this point on, the trail was faint but identifiable. Despite the trash at the trailhead, this high up forest looked absolutely untouched. After mounting the hill, we wound through thick growth made of a tree I have never seen. Low-hanging branches of a round profile surrounded the thin trunk, appearing like a cross between a weeping willow and an acorn tree. Besides that, there were quite a few other types of foliage I had never seen before. Once atop the hill, we finally checked in on Google Maps to see how far along the trail we were. To our dismay, we were pinpointed way off the trail on the map. This startled me considering there was only one visible trail along the whole path. What was even more startling is that we ended up on a trail not listed by Google Maps. Admittedly, this wasn't too worrisome since the pathway was fairly defined despite not seeing much action. We assessed that we should make the best of the situation anyway and press on a little further to make good use of the remaining daylight. GMAP showed that we were near a rock crawling or ATV tourist attraction on the state line called Hole in the Rock, a wagon tunnel that cut through the mountain's crown near the top. However, the last and only check-in for the area was five years prior. Apparently, we had found ourselves on an old wagon trail stretching from our side through the tunnel and into the next on the other side. The place was old, for sure. Exciting was the notion of trekking through an archaic commerce road, passing the old Native American land of Mount Mason. Interesting stuff. We resolved to find the wagon tunnel and descend before dark, but we did not make it there in time before having to turn around. I'll go ahead and tell you that nothing exciting happened about which I am both disappointed and relieved. After hiking back down without incident, as expected, we left behind the old lake. It was hard not to dwell upon the chilling isolation felt at Lonesome Creek. The land was empty and quiet, not at all marred by frequent travel. I'm deadly serious when I tell you that this place had a very different energy that your typical nature trail has. It evoked an unsettling combination of serenity and oppression. I found it to be the perfect place for strangeness in the primordial wilderness. Lonesome Creek seemed as isolated from the rest of Arling as Appalachia is to the rest of America. It can be easily ascertained that isolation of the spirit would certainly breed desolation of the soul. Investigation Yesterday, I rang up a lady, we will call her Marla, whom I've known for quite a long time. Marla has been investigating the weird and wild for almost 20 years and has written a few books about local Kentucky myths, folklore, 
and paranormal stories. She has, with her own resources, even helped find and identify of an early 20th century cold case victim. Conveniently enough, it just also happens that she and her family live about a mile from the old lake. I knew that if anyone could point me to something, it would be Marla. To be quite honest, I did not expect the volume or magnitude of some of the things she told me on that phone call. I have no bias toward the truth of the two stories I've already recounted. This is different to me. I believe this woman with everything in me, and I do not consider myself naive. I will relay to you the information she has given me, which consists of her own experiences as well as the accounts of her family members. I will do my best to tell them faithfully. When Marla married and moved to the Old Lake Road, it seemed nice enough, rural and quiet. She had her first child in 1993, who would grow up to be one of my best friends. When he was barely a toddler, his maternal and paternal grandfathers often took him to the woods, across the road from their house, through their family cemetery, and up a long dirt path. One day, Maria received a call from her father, asking her to tell her father-in-law, who lived on the same property as Marla and her husband, not to take her son into the mountains that day. He said he'd seen some strange folk camping there who seemed a little suspect. Her father must have been pretty concerned because later that evening, the state police showed up at the cemetery. The authorities informed Marla that they had to run off some people up on the mountain, that they appeared to be trying to set up a site to regularly meet and loiter for whatever purpose. Before leaving the cemetery, the policeman she was speaking to told her plainly, between me and you, they are doing some strange things up there. When pressed, he could not say, just shook his head and declined to answer. About a year later, Marla got the gall to go with her husband up to where the police ran off the loitering creeps. She claims to have found small animal bones scattered around a clearly once established site, and a concrete slab fitted into the dirt and etched with what she described as obviously evil symbology. This was a time before cell phones, so she has no photo evidence. Side note, she has also given me permission to check out the area, so I may have something tangible for that in the inevitable update post. The next weird experience to befall Marla did not come for almost six years. It seemed to have spooked her more than anything else, she has told me. One evening, Marla thought it would be fun to take her son, then age seven, on a walk to the old lake to check out the creek, catch salamanders and find rocks as they often did along the river which runs beyond their property. They made their way to the lake and followed Lonesome Creek up toward the initial incline and past the marked WMA area. Apart from the creek babble, Marla caught ear of what sounded like loud voices further into the woods. As she and her son continued up to face the second incline, it became evident that a group of people were gathered toward Mason's crown. A loud voice echoed from above, booming and fervent, like that of a typical southern preacher. The voice spoke rapidly and was periodically answered by groups of voices which spoke in unison. Marla and her son listened closely. The chanting began to cease and everything fell quiet. The eerie silence was broken by the man's booming voice, angrily shouting in Marla's direction from high atop the ridge. Marla grabbed her son and ran all the way back down to the trailhead, fearing that whoever gathered there had seen her and was warding her off. Like the others, she's never since been back to Lonesome Creek. Years after her experience with the chanting voices, Marla recounted a time her father and father-in-law had been part of something unexplainable when traveling the trail from the Kentucky side of Mount Mason. Though they followed a path that both had walked many times before, the two men became disoriented and got lost. Marla's father said that an anxious feeling washed over him, and suddenly, 
It was as if they simply were somewhere else entirely. They made it home unharmed in an amount of time they described as unusually short, but were never able to explain the event. It was later realized that they had somehow ended up on the other side of the state line on Mount Mason, way out there. This was not her only account of this phenomenon. Just two years after the incident, her father described, two fish and wildlife officials showed up at her house in the middle of basically nowhere. The men admitted that they had no clue where they were. They told Marla they were trying to get to their destination on the neighbor state side, but somehow became lost and ended up on the Kentucky side. I find it unsettling that despite having maps and being otherwise familiar with their territory, they ended up miles and miles off track. Marla noted that they were visibly shaken by the experience. As time has crept almost 20 years past, Marla has searched for answers to her experiences, but has found few. The only presumption she has gleaned is that there have been unexplainable forces in these mountains since they were settled and probably long before. Appalachia is closely tied with various oddities and old traditions, both good and bad. Benign covens of witches, yet existent within unbroken bloodlines. Wannabe satanic sects composed of lunatics who gain pleasure through infliction of suffering. Old secret societies once prominent, but that have since died with cold countries, prosperous towns dotted across all of rural Appalachia. There is much to be uncovered, and there is even more that should be altogether left alone. Afterward and continuation. If you think about it for a moment, this sort of place really is a perfect hiding place for things of a darker nature. An isolated mountain range with an ancient soul wherein you can find whatever old secrets you may be looking for. My dilemma is whether or not trying to find them is a good idea. The things I've written are the only bits of information that Marla has given me, relevant to the ill air at Lonesome Creek in Mount Mason. There is much more than she has shared with me regarding other areas in Arling and surrounding counties that I will share within another time. I fully intend on going back to follow the stream of Lonesome Creek itself up the mountain and onto that ridge. I want to be fully prepared to investigate the secrets of the creepy old wagon trail where dark things surely took place. Interestingly enough, I have discovered that a wealthy old family in Arling owns the suspect property along the ridge. Maybe next time we will find the path to get there. Stay tuned in the coming weeks. Marla and I are supposed to meet in person so that I can write up some of her stories down for good detail. I may very well have some interesting photos and documentation coming up. This next story has two parts. I will start with part one. I used to work on the north slope of Alaska in the oil industry. The work we were doing required us to travel far out into the Alaska Petroleum Reserve, which is basically just untamed tundra wilderness for hundreds of miles. The oil companies would build these long ice roads in the winter that would lead to exploration drilling pads. Our job was to go out after they finished the initial drilling and test rock formations for their oil producing qualities. It was mid-January. The sun hadn't quite come up yet. And when I say the sun hadn't come up, I mean in almost a month and a half. Polar nights are intense. The particular well site we were traveling to was about 60 miles west of Alpine, Alaska, deep in the wilderness. Our job took a week, but we finished and we were headed back to camp to finish our hitch and go home. At the beginning and end of the ice roads are guard shacks that you have to check in and out of for safety 
no cell reception and radios work only up to a distance. If you don't check in or out in a set time, they come looking for you to ensure you are not a popsicle. It was about four in the morning, not that it mattered in the land of endless night, and we were halfway across the ice road. Travel was slow, as the speed limit on the roads is only 25 miles per hour. When something appeared on the road in our headlights, it was a man in jeans, sneakers, and a hoodie jacket. Walking down an ice road in wilderness tundra at 4 a.m., and it was negative 20 degrees outside. It's not unusual for the local Inuit people to be out this far hunting. Maybe his snowmobile broke down and he's trying to get back to the guard shack? That seemed plausible. He didn't acknowledge us as our tracks rolled up next to him. He just kept shuffling forward. He didn't seem cold. His clothing, while totally not appropriate for the extreme weather, appeared warm and dry. We also noticed he wasn't Inuit, but Caucasian. I rolled down my window and asked if he needed any help and if he was okay. He still didn't acknowledge us, just kept shuffling forward. His face was completely blank, devoid of any thought or emotions. The other guys in my truck suggested that maybe he was in an accident and in shock. I continued rolling my truck alongside him as he trudged down the road, still trying to get his attention. Even in this extreme cold, I could occasionally get whiffs of a peculiar smell coming off of him. He smelled acidic, if that makes sense. There was just a lot about this guy that made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. The guy behind me in the truck's crew crab had had enough of all of this. He rode down his window and reached out to grab the guy. He later said he was just going to try and shake him out of his stupor. Before my buddy's hand could reach him, though, this walking popsicle spun around and latched onto my buddy's outstretched arm. He glared at my buddy and then at me with this look of pure rage, not removing his hand from his arm. If emotions had a physical temperature... This guy could have melted the entire tundra that night. My buddy groaned in pain as he tried to get his arm free from Mr. Popsicle. At that moment, this guy starts screaming in our faces. There was so much hate and rage and anger in that scream. It was absolutely terrifying. I slammed on the gas and spun out on the ice for a second before the wheels caught and launched us forward. Popsicle dude still had a hold of my buddy's arm and was trying to pull him out of the truck. He was running alongside the truck while the other guys in the cab held on to my buddy to keep him inside. After several moments, if it only had been a few seconds at most, my buddy tore free from this guy and we hauled ass to the guard shack another 30 miles down the road. We checked in with the guards and reported what we had just seen. The guard was looking at us like we were pulling a prank, but policy said they had to check it out regardless. My buddy's arm was sore, and when he pulled back his sleeve, there were noticeable bruises and the shape of a hand around his arm. We filed a report with the guard and were told to head back to our camp. None of us really wanted to talk about what happened, and it was the quiet drive the rest of the way. We flew home the next day. The next time we saw the guard at this shack, we asked him if they ever saw Mr. Popsicle on their patrols. He told us they searched up and down that ice road for a solid 12-hour shift and saw nothing. Not even tracks in the snow leading off the road. He told us it was a good prank and that he'd get us back for making him waste a shift driving around. But it wasn't a prank. Who would make up a story like that? And who would willingly bruise their arm for a dumb prank? We never got a satisfying answer to what happened that evening. I still wonder about that dude. If he even was a dude. The Alaskan Tundra is a weird place. And that was just one of my many weird 
stories from my time up there. Here's the second story to go along with what I just read. It was March on the slope. While still in the depth of Arctic winter, with the equinox approaching, the day-night cycle was becoming more even. My flight to the slope was delayed due to a large blizzard which shut down the Dead Horse and Kubaruk airstrips. I spent three days waiting in Anchorage until the storm cleared and we were able to fly. Landing at the Kubaruk airstrip, it was evident the blizzard was more severe than we had initially thought. While whiteout blizzards are common, actually snow accumulation is not. This storm, though, was a monster. Snow drifts several stories tall ran up against the camp housing. Our work trucks and equipment were completely covered in snow, and it took a full day of digging to get them out. As soon as the trucks were free, we were off to our first job assignment. No time to rest in the oil field. Traveling anywhere after a storm this size is a nightmare. To get to the work site, we had a bulldozer escort us, breaking up any remaining drifts as we went. The dozer cleared our work area around the well house and we began to rig up our equipment. It took little time and soon we were back to the normal humdrum life of Arctic oil well maintenance. Over the radio, we got a call from the bulldozer operator as he left that he had seen a giant black animal headed our direction. He couldn't tell if it was a wolf or a big dog, but it was massive and moving erratically. In the winter, many animals aren't active on the slope. Caribou, musk oxen, and foxes are the usual wildlife you'll encounter out in the snow. The animals keep to themselves for the most part, but you learn very quickly to never look the animals in the eyes if they approach you. This goes doubly for the white foxes, and I advise you to do the same. The grizzlies are hibernating. The male polar bears are hunting on the sea ice, while the females are denned up with the new cubs. Wolves aren't unheard of, but rarely leave the Brooks Range Mountains, a couple hundred miles to the south. Whatever the operator saw, we would keep watch, but it wasn't our problem. It was a problem for the bear police. We went about our work, albeit cautiously. It's interesting to note that oil companies on the slope have private security officers who, besides being private law enforcement, also try to minimize encounters with wildlife. We referred to them as the Bear Police, which is a cute name for a rather dangerous part of their job. These security officers are the only personnel on the North Slope, outside of regular law enforcement, that can carry firearms. Their primary job was encountering large predators and to harass them until they leave. This is done with beanbag guns or loud noises at first. When that fails or the animal is unusually aggressive, lethal force is needed. We had settled into our work and forgot about the wolf or dog or whatever it was. I needed to take a leak. I go out of the truck and walk behind the well house to take care of business. My crewmate came over the radio telling me to get back in the truck. There was a wolf coming out from behind the well house where I had just been and he was pacing after me. I didn't look behind me. I just ran back and jumped into the truck. I'm not taking any chances, even if it was a crewmate practical joke. Once inside, I looked out, and sure enough, trotting towards the truck was a large, black, male wolf. He approached our trucks and plopped down on the snow in front of us. This wolf looked rough, even by wild animal standards. The right side of its face was mutilated and deformed missing his right eye and most of his skin and lips on that side of his head. The wound exposed large white teeth, giving him the appearance of a wide crooked smile. He didn't appear aggressive, but he didn't take his good eye off of us either. That one good eye was bright red in appearance. It was eerie. 
The way he sat there staring, watching, waiting. We radioed the security officers for help, and like a speeding bullet, they showed up 40 minutes later. That whole time, waiting the wolf never diverted his attention from us. If I hadn't seen him breathing, I would have assumed it was a statue. The security officers arrived and took some pictures for their reports, then began the process of driving the animal back out into the tundra. Truck horns didn't startle him. He didn't even flinch. Charging him with their truck did nothing either. They then took aim with a beanbag gun and hit him square in the ribs. The wolf let out a yelp but didn't get up or move from his spot. The next beanbag hit him in the head and that jostled him enough to get up and leave. Security told us to call back if we saw the wolf again. They seemed confident he would move on and not be a bother anymore. The sun was setting and our job was still hours from wrapping up. Working a 13 to 15 hour day isn't unusual. You either get used to the long hours or you find another line of work pretty quick. I was running the computer equipment inside the truck and weird data was coming back from the tools down in the well. They were blanking out and losing signal or they were reporting data backwards. But diagnostics wasn't indicating any issues. To the computer systems, everything was operating normally. I tried a few different things to fix the issue, but it persisted. One of the workers went out to the wellhead to check the gauges and cables, trying to isolate the problem from there. He was outside for not more than five minutes before the night was pierced by a long, bellowing howl. This was immediately followed by the high-pitched shriek of our crewmate. Throwing the door open, I was able to catch a fleeting glimpse of a large dark figure running behind the wellhouse. Our crewmate ran past us and jumped inside. Pale, sweating, and full of adrenaline, he tried to relay what just happened. Through his panting, he said he was in the wellhouse checking the cables when someone walked up behind him. Thinking he was one of us, he started a conversation with his back turned. When he got no reply, he turned and was met face to face with a seven-foot-tall black wolf standing on its hind legs. It stood between him and the door, growling. Without thinking, he flung his pipe wrench at the beast and struck him hard in the chest. That's when it let out a howl and ran off. Our crewmate was adamant this was the same wolf from earlier because its face was mangled in that crooked half-smile and one fiery red eye. Myself and the others on the crew had a hard time believing he saw a giant wolf man. We had no doubt he saw the wolf, but we reasoned that in his panic, he hallucinated that it was upright like a man. But we'd all encountered enough weird things on the slope to never count out the impossible. We radioed the security officers and told them the wolf had returned and waited inside the truck. What else could we do but wait? I wasn't about to go there and fight Satan's guard dog with a clipboard and a mouse pad. Every time we felt like things settled down outside, we would hear a growl or something would push against the truck. Periodically, we could see something pacing in the dark just beyond the reach of the work lights. Even though we were inside a locked truck cabin, it was still a very vulnerable feeling. We were very much trapped. I'm sure it felt similar to what divers experience inside a shark cage far out at sea. All of this went on for an hour while we waited for someone to show up. Finally, coming up the road, we could see headlights of three approaching vehicles. The security team had showed up, this time with actual rifles. Over the radio, we told them what had been going on. You could feel their disbelief and eyes rolling through the radio. That sass and disbelief soon faded when we explored the work site and found it covered in fresh, large wolf tracks. The security team split us up with two trucks headed out to search for the wolf, while the last one remained with us 
as we loaded our equipment and finished our job. We didn't hear or see anything else that night as we cleaned up, but we sure did keep our heads on a swivel. The security officers didn't find the wolf that night. A set of tracks left off the work site and out into the open tundra. The officers commented that the tracks looked weird. This was due to them only seeing the back paw prints in the snow. The last security truck escorted us back to the main camp while the others continued their search into the night. For the following week, various reports came in across the oil field of people seeing this mangled black wolf during the day. And at night, reports kept coming in of a black beast walking upright and harassing or cornering workers. Security seemed to always show up minutes too late. During this time frame, many of the Alaska native workers were getting nervous. One of our friends in the camp workshop was from Nuxet, a small Inupiat village just west of the oil field. He told us it sounded exactly like a Igerak, a shape-shifting creature that can take the form of any arctic animal while it hunts. He said it was obvious as the wolf was a normal, albeit deformed, animal in the daylight, but transformed into an upright monster after nightfall. The Igerak are thought to be Inuit hunters that traveled too far north and became stuck between the world of the living and the dead. They transformed into evil, deformed men with sideways mouths and eyes. They used their power of shape-shifting to hunt other Inuit, especially children. The Inupiat are weary of wild animals for this very reason. A week following our encounter, the security team was able to corner the wolf on a remote work site. It had attacked and trapped two welders in their trucks. Both workers had superficial cuts through their snowsuits, but were otherwise fine. Having no other choice, the wolf was euthanized on the spot. Security shot the wolf once, and instead of dropping dead, it charged the officer that shot it. The wolf took three more high-powered rifle shots before it eventually collapsed at the feet of the officer. Even then, paralyzed in the new crimson snow, the wolf was still growling through its crooked, wide smile. After several minutes, it finally succumbed to its wounds. The wolf's body was taken to the University of Alaska Fairbanks for dissection and examination. Out of the facial deformities and gnarled appearance, the biologist concluded it was an ordinary wolf from the Brooks Range Mountains. How it got hundreds of miles from home and why it stayed on the tundra is still a complete mystery. And that, dear listeners, brings it close to these true backwoods creepy stories. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you comfortably. If you're awake, I hope you've enjoyed this collection. Until next time, please take care of yourselves. I'll be reading to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good evening. Peace, love, and light to you all. <laughs>